we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Today on Buffalo What's Next, we're going to be talking about reading. Now, in the city of Buffalo, according to the investigative post, recent numbers that they uh, published, they said that 16.5% of black elementary students in the city of Buffalo read at grade level. 42% of white pupils read at grade level. Those numbers, of course, are not particularly good. And our guest this morning is someone who wants to address that and address that in a very strong way. Kareem Weaver is with us this morning. Uh, Mr. Weaver is uh, the head of Fulcrum. I'll let you tell us what Fulcrum is. Sure, Fulcrum is a nonprofit we started a few years back to uh, improve literacy outcomes. We've got to get our kids reading. And we track the NAACP to see what they're doing. We try to put feet on that. We put hands and feet on it to actually uh, move things forward. But we're an organization that's really focused on kids, all colors, all stripes, all economic classes, all language backgrounds. We got to get them reading. We, I mean, those those statistics you just quoted. I mean, I, I know we probably got a long way to go in this interview. Sure. But those statistics, I, you know, 16 and a half percent. He said that's one right. in six kids. Right. White kids around 40 percent. You know, I got news for you. Those are both a crisis. You know, sometimes we talk about the achievement gap and we focus on what's between the 16 and the 40 and how big. Listen, if black kids are reading at 40%, I'd still be doing the same thing. That's a crisis. And so we can talk about the, the gap, but at some point we have to step back and say, what about all our kids? All our kids are struggling. And that's the frame that Fulcrum tries to look at things through. Should also mention that we are on remote today at the Record House here in Williamsville. So if you hear a little bit of jazz music in the background, well, it's because of the, uh, the comfortable surroundings that uh, they've uh, afforded us. But uh, Mr. Weaver uh, comes to us from uh, Oakland, California, right. and is here actually uh, talking to a variety of groups. They've got you right. a, 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 on a busy schedule here, so we're uh, very fortunate to get the amount of time that we have here with you today. But let's maybe just talk about, like you said, it's a crisis, and yeah. that is why you are here to talk about this uh, for sure. Um, let's talk about the groups that wanted you to come yeah. to Western New York to yeah. talk about this. So just talk about their interest in you and what you bring to them. Well, I hope it's not just about me, but I think what they were looking for is a voice to just make it plain. There are a lot of different constituencies. There's a lot of politics around reading. At a certain point in time, you gotta just make it plain. So I think what they were after is somebody who can kind of cut through the noise and cut through the tribalism. So I don't, I don't get involved in the politics of it. I mean, I understand Democrats and Republicans and I, I get all left, right, I get all that. But to me, uh, this is a, a bipartisan issue. So they reached out to me, uh, especially with a civil rights background, working with the NAACP. You know, this, this is a civil rights issue. This isn't, this isn't just some technocratic thing. This is all of our homes, 
all of our kids, and this is all of our country. So we got to figure out how to do this together. From a civil rights perspective, this is a non-negotiable must-do. So, you know, I look at this more of like a social security issue. Uh, you know, social security, everybody gets it. That's, that's the reason why you can't really get rid of social security, because everybody. Right. Yeah. And so literacy has to become the same thing, that it's everybody's issue. And that's the only way we're going to tackle this thing is to do it together. So that's why they brought me out here. Um, and I mean, I'm happy to be here. I had a great time yesterday uh, working with school district and, and system leaders, BOCES directors and all those folks, and then parents and teachers. And well, they had a wide range. I give credit to uh, the folks at WNY and uh, they've organized and they're the host of this event. Uh, there was a previous event that they held out here. I think it was in December or November. And I told myself, I'm not coming back out here until it warms up. <laughs> and here we are, <laughs> man, you know, I don't, you know. But I'm a, I'm a longtime Bills fan. Oh. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not not this this new thing. Don't get me wrong, sure. the new stuff. But I'm talking about Electric Company. I'm talking about oh, even after that, Joe. Company. Yeah, yeah, right. And Joe Cribs, Lionel Chain Joe James Chris. after that. Yeah, man, I'm wow. telling you what you're talking about. Wow. That's right. So that's, yeah, so I was that kid in Oakland with the Bills hat on one day and the Raiders hat on the next. So, <laughs> so that's why I love Buffalo, man. One of the reasons I love Buffalo. So I'm happy to come out here and help any way I can. You did, I have a, a quote here that. Uh, kind of addresses politics to a certain extent, it, it, not necessarily a political statement, but it says, there are people blocking our kids from learning to read, mm -hmm. but they truly believe they're helping them. Yes. And that's the problem. Yes. Explore that for me. So, so first of all, let's look at our default settings, okay? Most of us, we think that the most loving thing we can do for a child and their family um, is to help them the way that we were helped. So if I learned a certain way, I'm going to help you learn that way, so I'll make sure you get it. And that's me opening up and sharing with you. But that, that, that normal sensibility betrays us. Because what kids actually need is not what many of our teachers and educators, it's not the way they learned it. About a third of people learn to read pretty readily. You know, you teach them whatever method. It could be Montessori, it could be play-based learning, it could be, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. You just teach them something, they're going to learn the thing, right? They pick it up and they, 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 they Yeah, right. Five. As a matter of fact, about 5%, you don't even need to do that. Like, they'll pretty much learn on their own. Wow. Yeah, about, so that's a total of about 35%. Then you got another two-thirds of kids who you have to teach it explicitly, systematically, and directly. you got to teach the thing. So our teachers, our principals, our superintendents, all those folks in the system, they're the first group. They're the survivors of the system. And so in their frustrated love, they think, well, okay, look, I don't know, this curriculum is terrible, I don't trust this, I don't trust that, but you know what? I'm gonna love these babies and give to them what was given to me. Not realizing that's the very thing they don't need. They actually need something different than what you did. What, what they need is for somebody to walk them through it step by step. Don't skip a step, don't, don't make any assumptions. One step at a time, walk it up, help them with the sounds, what they hear, how to put symbols to that, how to put those things together, how to create patterns and all that. Like, teach them how to read directly. But that's not how many of us learn to read. And so when we try to go to our default settings, it betrays us. So that's, that's really underneath a lot of this problem, is that the folks in charge don't really perceive the issue. And so you can find a new program, you can increase funding, you can do this, you can do that. If you're not actually teaching them directly how to do it, it's not gonna work. And that's the issue. That's the issue. We uh, hear about the science of reading, yeah. science of reading at its simplest level. It Simple. sounds like you've kind of touched upon that yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah. But you're saying what you just went through there is a science. Yeah, man, just like, you know, uh, if, if you're a doctor 
and you go to medical school, you'll learn that science. Um, you'll learn, uh, if you're a psychologist, you'll learn that science, right? There's an art to things and then there's a science to things. There's the creative aspect of things, which is fine, and teachers need that to be able to paint the picture how they need it to. But there is a discipline. There, there is a science behind it. There's tons of research. There's a guy, um, his name is John Hattie. And I mean, he and his team did a research of the research. 300 million students across the world, these studies, they looked at these studies, and they looked at what makes the difference in learning, right? Positively and negatively. And they came up with all these things and, and how big a difference it made. Well, the science of reading is basically just taking the stuff that works the best, put it together, do it consistently, and teach that. That's in a nutshell what right. it is. Because it said, look, you got this, this, this uh, phonics, this fluency, what they call it repeated reading, vocabulary, comprehension. You know, you put on oral language development and writing. And there, there's some things that we know about. But there's another way to look at it. Just do what works. Like, if you told me. Jay, if you were to say, Kareem, listen, my brother has been teaching for 20 years, and what he does is he spins plate on his fingers in the backyard, and those kids read at 100% level, and they go off and do great things. Man, I'd be a plate spinning. Whatever works is what we ought to be doing. So when we look at what works and what doesn't work, well, folks that are doing, that are applying those things that Hattie's team laid out, they're getting kids to read. Right? They're at a much, much higher level, but they're doing it systematically, they're doing it explicitly, and they're, and they're doing it consistently over time. And the folks who aren't, most of us, aren't doing those things. Or maybe we do some of it. We, we pick our, you know, like choose your own adventure right. book. We pick the stuff that we like that feels good to us instead of saying, what works best? Let's do that. Let's commit to it. Let's do the, you know, those five pillars I mentioned. Let's do the assessments, uh, the formative assessments. Let's do... Um, the other materials. Let's do the professional learning and all this stuff. Let's just let's do the curriculum right. Like, just do what works. You don't have to put a fancy label on it, man. Just do what evidence says works. The research and evidence, both, you know, the results are in. This is how kids learn to read. The majority of kids gotta have it that way. And if you want the kids to read, well, then we have to follow suit. Or we have to question our own motives. Why aren't we? Why are we shoving stuff down kids' throat that they're just not... I, I liken it to you like this. Maybe your listeners can relate, if, can relate. If you were to buy a house and you go in that house and you see a kitchen, many people look at that kitchen and they say, wow, I love this kitchen. This kitchen is phenomenal. Look at these appliance, modern appliances and all the rest. And they buy the house. But the reality is you really don't have time to cook. And you're not a Swiss chef. <laughs> you, you're working two jobs. You're barely there. Right. What you need is something functional. What works so that your kids don't starve to death, okay? And so right now what we're doing is we're chasing a fancy kitchen. And instead of saying, okay, given our finances, given our goals, given the, you know, the prime directive of get these kids where they need to be, what's going to work for them? Well, we just need something that's functional. We need something that we can enrich it. That's where the artistry comes in for the profession. But let's make sure the nuts and bolts are in place. So we can do the job we're supposed to do and that the parents expect for us to do. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. More to come right after this on WBFO. Watch the WNED PBS original production, The Adirondacks. We've come closer here to a, a working balance between the natural world and the human world than just about any place on Earth. The Adirondacks, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. 
our region is home to some of the finest communities in the world. Explore them through the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking with uh, Kareem Weaver uh, this morning on Buffalo What's Next, talking about reading and reading crisis, as uh, Mr. Weaver mentions it. And I don't think there's uh, a lot of people who are going to uh, argue that when it comes to um, some of the numbers that we see. You would be surprised. You would be surprised. Really? You say, well, people will argue. Well, no. First of all, we're Americans. We can argue about anything. And that's true. We can that's disagree true. about anything because what happens is people begin to say, well, the way I've been doing things, it's now part of my identity as a professional or as a parent or as whatever. Right. And it's tough to admit you made a mistake. We got to make sure we've got leaders in place who can say, you know what? When you know better, you do better. I'm going to lead the way. I blew it. We blew it. Don't blame your kids, don't blame the teachers. We made some choices and we're gonna make some pivots. Man, that's that's tough. Sure. And you don't find many people in leadership who are willing to do that. So you would say not everybody would argue, I beg to differ. All right, uh, let me, uh, I wanna just take the point <laughs> though from this thing because you uh, kinda touched on it, yeah. I think a little bit right here. Is there just a perception that it was better in the old days, that more people knew how to read and it's, it's more difficult now? Is, or is that, is that fact? Um, so reading has been fairly consistent for a long time. It's plunged here recently. We got the pandemic and you got some other stuff. Kids weren't in school, et cetera, et cetera. But we've struggled for a long time with this. But there's a difference. Times have changed. It used to be in this country, um, I take my father. My father, I think he was dyslexic. We don't know, he was never tested. He was held back in third grade. He ended up getting a good job raised a family. I mean, he had his struggles, but he worked for this plant and was there for 30 years. Like that, that person nowadays might be homeless. That, first of all, that job doesn't exist. Right. And if it does, it's fleeting. I mean, I mean, you know, so we have changed as a society and what you need to make it is different than what you, you have to be literate today. You have in Oakland and this is, you know, we're in Buffalo right now. Every city's got a different context. Right now in Oakland, you have people sleeping out on the street, on every corner, under bridges, on the sides of the freeways, completely homeless. And so this is after the social services have run out. This is after the families have just had enough. This is after what, whatever the issues are that landed them there, they are there. Not in the ones and the tens, by the hundreds and by the thousands. And people in Los Angeles look at us like, man, you guys got it good. Right. It, this is a national epidemic. 70% of those people who are homeless, illiterate. You could go to the prisons. 73% functionally illiterate, reading below a fourth grade level. 48% uh, dyslexic. So what are we doing before that happens? Or do we just let things play out? This isn't 1965. This isn't 1945. You're not working at the plant, and if you are, you know, God bless you, 
but that, that, that plant's closing down. They're moving overseas or whatever they're doing. So what are kids supposed to do nowadays? And then let's look at the family structure. So my daughter was 12 years old and she, ha she had a newspaper and she was reading this newspaper and she says, Dad, is this true? And I looked, the title of it said, 75% of black boys in California are illiterate. Now, you gotta remember, 12 years old, you know, hormones are starting to kick in. Sure. And, and what she was really asking me was, as a daughter to a father, two things. One, what am I supposed to do? We're, like, I, I get it and, like, you know, she kind of liked, that was the beginning of her kind of liking boys. Like, what are my options here? What, what's, and the second thing she wanted to know was, what are you doing about it? In fact, she actually asked me, so what's happening? Does anybody do anything about this? That's what my 12-year-old daughter asked me. So who's doing, who's doing anything about this? And that's the question. Who's doing anything about this? This is not just some technocratic issue. This is our families. You know, how are people supposed to have some security with their families if they can't find a job, if they can't start a business, if they can't, all the things that you do, I don't care if it's getting a driver's license, getting your permit, I don't care if it's um, doing your taxes. I, you have to be literate today to just engage, even as a voter, right? I wonder sometimes, or even going to church. I, I talk to some of my friends who are pastors. I'm like, you're a pastor, right? Don't, don't you want them to actually read the book? Or do you just want to tell them what the book says? Like, there was a time during slavery where we couldn't read the book. People just said, look, this is what it says, you just gotta believe us. Is that where we are again? And this is across demographics. Like, those statistics you said earlier, um, I think you said 42% of, of white, white kids in the area. Kids, yeah. well, well, here's my other question. Let's say you and I are on a bus, right? And we're both in the back of the bus. I'm in the very back. You're in like the third from the back seat, right? But the bus is going over the cliff. How foolish are we to sit up here and argue about who's got it worse? We're both in the back of the flipping bus and the bus is going over the cliff. That's what 40% is, because it basically means six out of 10 can't read. That is a crisis. And if it makes you feel better to look at the black kids and say 16%, okay, fine, God bless you, but guess what? Your 40% community is going over the cliff right along with us, unless we do something different for our kids. So that's why I say we're all in this together. Can all kids learn to read? Absolutely. Absol no exception. There are some extreme cases where there are neurological differences where kids, you know, they have some, um, um, some processing differences and, 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 and some, some delays. But for the most part, the American Federation teachers came out years ago and said 95% of all kids can read. Research backs that up. That includes kids with dyslexia. That includes kids with different neurological differences. It includes, yes, they can. In fact, the Department of Justice, about 30 years ago, came out with a report. And uh, they were looking at literacy. And they looked at the youth who were incarcerated. And it's fascinating. I recommend everybody go Google it and look it up and, and at least just read the abstract. And what they said was, the kids here don't have word attack skills. That's an old way of saying they can't break things apart. Okay. And then they said, most of the kids, there are no neurological abnormalities. They just haven't been given basic word attack skills. In other words, man, there's nothing wrong with these kids. I don't care if they came in with a, with a, 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 a support plan from school. They, they, these kids neurologically are fine. The issue is they haven't been taught. This is what the prisons are telling us. And then they said, we're gonna have to do it ourselves, talking about the prison 
uh, uh, system because the schools of education are not preparing our educators with the tools they need to provide research-based instruction. My God, this is the prisons telling us to get our act together. And so what do we do as a society? We say, well, okay, that's them. Okay, well, at some point, them because becomes us, nine times out of 10. We shouldn't wait for the Department of Justice or, or the, the Bureau of Prisons to tell us that our kids can't read, that they need certain things. The research has been clear for years, for decades. Matter of fact, uh, AFT said this almost 15 years ago. Here are the elements of an effective reading program, right? Just do these things. We haven't done it. We've been arguing about everything else. Everything else we, we argue, like I said, we're expert arguers. But they've been saying the same things that the prisons have been saying, and the prisons have been saying the same thing that the researchers have been saying. It's just us out here who's just going along like it's no big deal, but it is a big deal. And if we don't fix it, our kids are circling the drain. So every kid can learn to read. Yes. Can every teacher teach to read? Yes. Is it, is it, a, is it a, a, a unique skill? that only some people get. So, so this I'd is, like this was, a, so first of all, my answer is yes. Okay. You can learn to do it. Um, I was very, very fortunate to have uh, some mentors who helped me and you know, her heroine of mine, Marva Collins, who was a great uh, educator for years. However, there has been a debate in the education, this is an old debate. So if you get some older teachers around, especially uh, African-American teachers, there's this long uh, standing debate. Are great teachers born or are they made? That was the thing. Sure. Like, that was the thing, right? And people debated it back. To, but what? But my experience tells me that it is a skill you can develop. There's some things you. It's going to be difficult. Some of the affective stuff and how you deal with kids and your patience level, like all, all that type of stuff. That's you as a person, right? But you can get the skill. If you can learn to drive, you can teach a kid to read. You can't tell me that a person can learn, you know, all the rules of the road, but can't learn the rules of our code. You can. You can teach a kid what they need to do, and you can teach them how to practice, and you can teach them day by day, systematically. Now, curriculum helps. If you got a, 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 excuse my French, but a piss poor curriculum, it's gonna be tough to have to deal with that because teachers are bound by whatever the district says you gotta do. So they got junk. If it's junk in, it's junk out. If the curriculum is, is, is not aligned to the science and the research consensus, what's the teacher supposed to do? If your graduate school isn't teaching teachers according to the research consensus and the brain science, what are you supposed to do? And nine times out of 10, both those things are true. The universities are doing what the heck they want to do. The methods one teacher and the methods two teachers don't get along. They've, they've gone along with the popularized notions of things rather than looking at what the evidence says. The deans have absolutely no control of what's going on and the provost is too busy looking at the endowment. At a certain point in time, they're gonna say, what is our mission statement here? Especially the public institutions. What, what are we chartered to do? What impact do we have on society? So you've got the pre-service, the, the universities, then you've got the K-12 systems who are run by the people who, like I said before, it worked for them. Sure. So the materials are all over the place. So in that context, what is a teacher supposed to do? I know um, I work with a teacher out in Oakland. Matter of fact, she's featuring in a movie that, that is just coming out. She risked her job. She, she didn't have tenure. She was like a third-year teacher in that system. You know, she taught before in Georgia, but she was new to our district. And so, you know, she came to the NAACP looking for help, trying to teach kids to read, going away from the script that they had. The, the, they were doing units of study, Lucy Calkins, it was a, the, and it just, and she realized this isn't working for my kids. It's not working for me. What am I gonna do? So we worked with her, we helped her, we supported her. And then when this started working, we're like, listen, y'all better leave her alone. Leave her alone. But most teachers don't have that type of backing. 
You're gonna do whatever the district says you're supposed to do. Teachers can learn to teach kids how to read. They need good leadership, they need good materials, they need good assessments, they need the time to prepare for their lessons and what they're gonna do. And, and they need a culture that's conducive to kids learning and for adults teaching. Those are the things that they need. Like, there's, there's a lot of other things sure. teachers need, to believe you, there's a lot of other things. But you gotta, those are some conditions that have to be there. And for many of our schools and many of our teachers, that's just not the case right now. I'm not trying to make excuses for teachers. No. Ultimately, you're in charge of your classroom. However, however, we have to also look at the system. Is it designed? Is it, is it staffed? Is it funded? Is, it, is the curriculum right? You can go into any school district right now. Tell me your curriculum. I can. Matter of fact, I don't want to hear about your bumper sticker slogan about equity, diversity, and inclusion. That's the thing now. I don't want to hear that. Show me your curriculum, your budget, and your schedule. And I'll tell you what your beliefs are. I'll tell you how you value literacy. Because your curriculum and your time and your money tell me, you know, where your intentions really lie or your understanding lies. You touched uh, one of the key words there when people look at school districts and education. Yeah. Budget. Budget. Yeah. What about this? Is this something that is... I mean, I want to use the word cost-effective because if there's a crisis, you need to come yeah. up with a solution. Yeah. Cost shouldn't be an issue. That being stated, though, when it's all said and done, how can, is the, at the end of the day, if it was done the way you're, you're talking about, and you were able to get the results you're talking right. about, would it be the, the, the so same kind of cost? If, or you want to say, if you want to save your teacher's pension fund, you better do this. You better figure out how to teach reading. If you, want to, if you want to save your schools from shutting down, you better figure out how to teach literacy. It costs four times as much to educate a child in special ed than it does general ed. 4X. Those costs are unsustainable. Um, and when districts look at their bottom, I mean, now right now, everybody's kind of afloat because, you know, COVID funds and they're flush with right. cash right now. So, so this is kind of like an artificial setting right now. But, but pretty soon, when that money's gone, we're going to be back to reality. And at a certain point, we have to be able to balance these books. We have to be able to provide enriching environments for kids and for, and for the educators who are serving them. And if we're not teaching kids to read, you're operating in crisis mode. And, and, and it's just not sustainable. It's just not. Um, in fact, one of the things that we're dealing with Oakland is school closures. They we're actually having to close schools because they're dwindling. The, the numbers are dwindling. We got the same number of kids. Oakland, yeah, yeah they, kids are, go parents are, parents think, Listen, it's not working for my kid here. What am I going to do? Well, I'll put them in this other school, uh, Catholic school, charter school, a school in a different district. They'll, they'll go to the school next to their cousin's house or something. Like, they figure it out. Um, not soon to realize that it's not much better over there either. They're not teaching reading well over there either. Right? But people are fleeing their traditional neighborhood school because the kids can't read. And that dynamic metastasizes. So you may think you have a behavior problem. You may think you have an attendance problem. You, you may think you have a culture problem. You really have a literacy problem. When the kids can't read, they don't come to school all the time. When they, can, when they can't read, they're going to flip a chair every now and then. At some point, it's going to bubble up, and then parents have to make the decision. Do I leave my kid in that situation, or do they give them the heck out of there? So if you want these systems, these institutions to be strong, you got to start with a foundation of literacy, which means preparing the teachers, which means having a good curriculum that's aligned to the science and research consensus, and it means having a safety net during the season of learning. And what I mean by that is... Safety net during yeah, you, the season yeah, of learning, Yeah, so, okay. so teachers, if you didn't get it in your graduate school, and most of us didn't, then, then when are you going to learn it? 
So the, the districts, the BOCES, the, the folks who are in charge of making sure this thing goes right, they're, they're flush with cash right now. They could say, look, we're going to spend X millions of dollars or X amount of dollars, and we're going to give all our teachers access to top-of-line professional development. Not the stuff that we're offering, because we're still figuring out, too. We're going to contract with these outside providers, or we'll have a department, or we'll, we'll partner with another district, whatever it is. We're going to give them what they need and what they're asking for. We're going we're gonna to have it at different levels. You know, there's some people who can take a graduate level class. Others, who's like a couple hours on the weekends, all I can give you. You know, I'm going through a divorce. For, like, and so it's, it's, a, it's a menu of options, and it's going to cost money. you got to pay teachers for the time, give them a stipend, and all that type of stuff. Okay, fine, you're doing it. But what about in the meantime and between time? Kids only got one chance at third grade or second right. grade. So while you're doing all this stuff, which is important to do, you got to take some of that pressure off of teachers. There are, there are things you can do to put a safety underneath kids and teachers so that during this season of learning, the kids aren't just falling through the cracks. They're just not. I, there's a, um, I won't name the program, but there's, there's one program, uh, there was a superintendent in Arkansas, and uh, I just saw a video of it this morning. One of these safety net programs was there and the kid was talking about how, you know, I couldn't really read before. You know, this program is helping me and I'm learning this, I'm learning that. And the superintendent's just crying, tears. And that's really what it's all about. Giving kids, especially those who are kind of on the edge of society, like they're kind of marginalized, give them a fighting chance. While we go through all this learning, and there's gonna come a time we won't need these safety nets anymore. Or, or, it's less likely that we'll need them. There are fewer kids will have to be um, caught in that way. But until then, you, you can't just say, okay, we're going to take a year off and just learn. That, that dog won't hunt. Right. you got to be able to support kids where they are right now, especially the ones that are the most vulnerable. We'll get right back to our conversation on Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Watch the WNED-PBS original production, The Great Erie County Fair. We were brought up on the fair. You know, that was the place to go, the thing to see. Celebrate 175 years of the excitement and competitive spirit of the fair, The Great Erie County Fair, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. Watch the WNED-PBS original production, Garden Wisdom for Western New York and Southern Ontario. Learn the secrets to planning, cultivating, and nurturing your own extraordinary garden using time-proven solutions and sustainable methods. Garden Wisdom, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking with uh, Kareem Weaver on uh, Buffalo What's Next this morning uh, on location today uh, at the Record House in uh, Williamsville. Uh, very nice of them to allow us to use their lobby here with their fine music <laughs> in the background as well. So if you're enjoying that, uh, thanks uh, for staying with us here. If we can, just a little bit, mm -hmm. get into maybe an example of how, I, I know there's a, what a word, phonemics, am I yeah. I'm pronouncing that correctly? That's part of this to yeah. a certain extent. I'm, I'm gonna make, try to make this as simple as we can. And, and it's something that a ahead, lot Jane, of that's all right. Yeah, it's cool, go ahead, man. Can. Well, what can you show show us or, or yeah. help us listen to how you th that might be broken down and how yeah. that might be a better way to teach yeah. a kid 
how yeah. to get started reading or to so first of all online. sure no problem so first of all when people say there's there's more than one way to teach reading they're absolutely right okay it is true right there's a lot of different ways the question isn't that to me the question is how do we get the greatest number of kids to read right so with that in mind you do start with the the phonemics meaning what you hear what are kids hearing and different kids from different cultures and linguistic backgrounds you think everybody's hearing the same thing sometimes they're not because of the, the, the way we elocute, the way we talk, the way we enunciate words. Maybe they got a second language background. Maybe they learned off, learned speaking French and now they're speaking English, whatever, whatever it is. Maybe they're African-American, they got a different dialect. Okay, fine, right? So first you have to kind of hear, make sure you're aligned on the sounds, right? Then from that, you identify or you help kids match uh, images with those sounds, letters. Okay, so you got the sounds, right? These are the sounds. So this is the, these are the letters, the symbols that we put with those sounds. We're gonna match these things up. Okay, we got that. Now guess what? We're gonna play a puzzle game. And we're, we're gonna take these images that represent sounds and we're gonna put them in a secret code. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what? This code unlocks your future. And I'm gonna help you crack this code. One step at a time, one day at a time, one lesson at a time. It's intentional. It's systematic, we're gonna do this every day, we'll play games with it, it'll be fun. We're gonna always start with the sounds, then we're gonna to to attach the letters, then we're gonna work on the code. Now, there's more to it than that. You know, you got the writing, and you got the oral language development, and you got the, there's, there's a lot that goes with it, fluency practice, comprehension, but you gotta be able to crack the code. And a lot of us just take it for granted, because we know how to do it. But imagine a situation when you don't. Just imagine, you sit down at, you know, I always talk about... Uh, is that part of it, a lack of empathy? I think it's a disconnect. It's a disconnect. I, I'm, and yeah, that's well said, a lack of empathy. But I don't even think we're connected. We, we walk past people. We, you know that old story, the Good Samaritan, and, and, and the one guy stops to see the, you know, the person, and he helps him get to the end and everything. We're disconnected. And so we talk about those kids and those teachers and, and you know, but no, these are our kids. It matters to me that somebody else's child can't read. So that, that could be empathy, you call it what you want to. I call it just being plugged in, right? My neighbor matters to me. I don't care what color he is. If, if his kid can't read, oh my God, you know, there's gonna be problems in that house. <laughs> you know, right. they're gonna be struggling. Um, and what if, the, what if, None of my neighbor's kids can read. Do I think that it's not going to impact me? Who am I going to hire? Who, who, who are my kids going to play with? And I'm not saying they're bad people, but as a society, we have to kind of do this thing together in certain ways. You know, you don't do big things by yourself. You don't go to the moon by yourself. There's some things in society you got to go together to do. Um, so, I, you know, I would just say that um, we have lost a sense of community where it matters most. There's no way, those statistics you read at the beginning, there's no way you can hear those statistics. Be plugged in and not care about it. I mean, it takes a special kind of numbness. You have to watch a lot of TV to numb yourself up to that type of stuff. You, you got to watch a lot of housewives in, in, in whatever city to, 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 to be distracted from that. You're telling me a sixth of the, of, of the kids in Buffalo that are black are reading and, and four out of ten of the white ones can read? Man, what the, so, so, listen, I love the Bills, I love Josh Allen, you know, uh, uh, but there's only so many touchdown passes he can throw in a season. 
It can't distract me from the fact that my neighbor's kids can't read. It can't. And I'll tell you another thing. So this is, so this is my, a quick Texas story. So I have some people in Texas that I work with and everything. And they were t asking questions kind of like you were asking. They were like, well, well, what can we do? What can we, I don't understand how, why it's so important. And when I told them, I said, let me tell you something. Do you know that most talented people, uh, athletically speaking, uh, in your school district, they probably can't read, right? So you're losing about, about 40 to 50% of your talent pool for your sports programs because they, they're ineligible. You know, they can't, can't get the grades. It's like, so if you can figure this literacy thing out, you will have a competitive advantage on the football field, on the gridiron. They were like, oh my God, oh my God. Like, it was like a eureka moment. We could win state. We, we have an advantage over the district over there if we could just get these kids to read. Doggone it, that's it. And, and I tell you not, like, they went to, to town. They, they were serious about that because they wanted to win state. It all depends on what matters to us. You know, right. that's the currency. It's Texas now. Texas is, you know, about sure. that football. So, and I'm not judging them. And I felt kind of bad about it. I was like, man, I had to go there. But you got to meet people where they're at, whatever your interest is. My interest is just your, your kid being able to have a healthy life. That's, you know, not to judge the folks. I'm just saying. Right. Whatever your thing is, whether you're a minister, whether you're a business owner, you know, we don't have enough... Kids can't pass the AFSED, the test to get in the military. They can't even, you know, so we have a crisis in the military as well. The last NDAA or the, 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 the authorization, um, we actually were going to sign girls up for selective service. It was removed with some protesting, but there was a reason why that was there initially. We don't have enough people anymore. We don't have enough eligible folks. We don't have enough boys. They can't read. So we got to go to the girl. I mean, you know, the implications of this stuff are society-wide. It touches every sector, every community, um, at different, different, you know, different levels. But everybody's impacted by this, man. Everybody is. You uh, said you wanted to meet them you know, where, where they are. That, where that's they right, are. And that's another part of this as well that I, I, I during the, the research, you want to meet teachers yes. where they are. That's right. That's right. Listen, it's very easy. Teachers are the tip of the spear. So they're the ones that are out front, they're delivering instruction. If you've got a problem with your child's education, it's, you're gonna to go to your teacher. That's, that's who you see, that's who sends the doggone letters home every day, that's who's calling you up, so you go to the teacher. Man, the teachers, and, and, and yes, they are the ones who are delivering the instruction. However, that's not who's deciding the curriculum. That's not who's deciding the professional development. That's not who's deciding how reading is taught. I mean, ultimately, they do have some agency. I'm not trying to say they don't have agency, but but they're, for the most part, they, they are um, designees of the superintendent officially. That's their t designee, right? Uh, which means we actually have to focus on the people who have the control to change things. Do superintendents have literacy in their evaluation plan? That's a question for these school board members. You're, this, you're a school board member. You, you, they only have one employee. Superintendent. Everybody else works for the soup. So is the superintendent, is literacy on their agenda? Is it in their evaluation? Are Isn't you not most superintendents? No, agenda? no, no. Look, first of all, superintendents don't stay that long to begin with. That's They're too busy trying to keep them in the building. For, right. But at the same time, you know, usually when a superintendent leaves, it's because of some financial thing that happens, some scandal. Um, there's a culture war. They're fighting about this and that. Personality conflict. Yeah, you're right, right. Exactly. Argument with the board members or they got a better offer somewhere. Like, that's why people are leaving. Just, but you have 
Think about this. Ask your listeners this. When was the last time you heard of a superintendent who was fired because the kids couldn't read? Think about it. Where the board said, you know what? Um, it's been three or four years. Our kids are still reading at 40-something percent. The white kids are this, 16 percent of the black kids. That, that, that's not, not going to cut it. We're going to have to let you go. We'll put you on an improvement plan, and if we don't see a change next year, we win. Across the country, not one. There's always a scandal. So there's, there's always some something. Or right? test scores. Yeah, 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 fine, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, but now, we can talk about testing. So there's this um, belief that for many that testing is irrelevant or unnecessary. Or over, over yeah, yeah. Yeah. But AFTs, I agree with them. That's not the case. You need good assessments. But here's a trick. Do you want an autopsy or do you want a checkup? Right now, we do autopsies for the most part. At the end of the year, they take this test and then they give the data to the, the parents and the teachers. Well, okay, that was last year's data. What does that mean to me? That doesn't help. I mean, fine, okay, my kid's below grade level, but okay, I got the next year to deal with now. Same with the teachers. You want data along the way so teachers can make adjustments in their lessons. Find out, oh, they don't know this or they're missing, they need some, matter of fact, this group of kids needs this, so I'm gonna put them together so I can work on that thing together. Whatever they're gonna do with that data, they need the checkup. And so that system has to be right in a school district. So testing, it's, it's not about testing, it's about how we use the tests. Do the people in charge of testing and assessment of the district know what they're doing? And do they message it appropriately? Because if they don't, I can tell you, the narratives around testing will just eat you alive. But if, if people understand the science of reading, if they understand, hey, actually, we, we need this, uh, AFT was right, we need formative assessments or, or checkups along the way, it's not a problem. Educators want to get it right. They want to help their kids, right? But they won't want to do, they don't want to just waste time. They want to do things that don't matter. Right? Why am I giving this checkup? I mean, why am I giving this uh, autopsy at the end of the year when this kid's going to the next grade anyway? Like, so I get it, accountability and also, you know, public information, it's important. I understand we need to know how our kids are doing. I get it. But I'm just saying in terms of the utility of it from a teacher's uh, uh, mindset, we have to make sure they're given the tools and the data that they need to make informed choices um, for their instruction. Can we maybe try to take a look at, I want to call it ideal mm -hmm. way of this would, would process, but it sounds like, like using your word, mm -hmm. checkup, yeah. as we move through, maybe not waiting till the end of the year, maybe on a monthly basis, a weekly yeah. basis, whatever the case may be, and moving kids into areas, kind of right. like a free-flowing way, where the kids who are getting it a little faster yeah. than others, others yeah. that, I mean, how do you kind of picture that that moving along because so, it sounds very different than right. the way I understand it, it, classrooms. It, it, yes, it is very different than the way most classrooms work. So here's here's what it is. So right now, we do give assessments oftentimes in schools, but it's completely based off of what the teacher perceives is needed. There's this belief as of uh, you know teacher as omniscient superheroine, and they just know when a kid. Like, teachers are human beings. Okay, now they, now they we can be pretty smart, but we got stuff going on too. 25 kids in a class, 20, 30, whatever the number is. Like it's tough to know all things about all kids. So right now, most of our systems rely on a teacher to decide what to test, when to test, how to test. Okay. Well, there may be some sort of a benchmark assessment, but who's monitoring that and what do we use this data for anyway? We got to move away from that. No, no, we're not testing because this teacher perceives there's an issue because they're tuned into this kid and his family. We're testing because it's Tuesday 
And on Tuesday, we give the assessment. <laughs> and on, on, on Wednesday afternoon, we distribute the data to the teachers and we do our data analysis meetings. And, and, and this is a cycle that we do regularly. It's just a system. You just made my head hurt just saying it, it like it, that, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 I'm, what I'm saying is like, right. it, it, we overcomplicate things. And, it's, and it takes the pressure off me to be perfect as an educator. Like I've got my own biases. And look, when it comes to girls and boys in school, I can tell you, our radar isn't tuned in very well as human beings. We tend to think when, when, when little girls have issues, there's a delay. Oh, she's so sweet. She's so nice. There's really no problem. She can read. She's good, right? Now, if there's a boy, nine times out of ten, that boy, um, you're going to see it in the behavior. And that gets our attention, because that's a crisis. We've got to deal with behavior issues right now. He's flipping a chair. He's stomping out of the room. He's fighting. He's doing whatever it is. I mean, girls can do that stuff, too. But, I mean, we, we tend to respond to the crisis rather than the need. And girls deserve no less attention. The quieter boys deserve no less attention. The more rambunctious girls deserve no less attention than anybody else. Everybody has a right to a free and appropriate public education. So that's why we got to do things systematically. So it's not just about me and my perception of you, your gender, your race, your class. And I was talking to some folks yesterday at the WNY meeting. Um, and I was like, you know, I know people think educators walk on water. But in the school building, it, we, we rely on our humanity just as much as the next person. Our training, yes, but also our humanity. Look, this kid is struggling to read. You know the parents are going through a divorce right now. You know that their older brother really struggled, almost dropped out. You do know that they had behavior problems last year. You do know that that family, there's a little bit of, you know, you know the father's friend Jack comes over all the time. Jack Daniels, he's there all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, so there's other issues going on, and so we interpret things. So we're just gonna, we're just gonna let this thing play out here. Let's not overreact. That's our interpretation. Now, maybe that stuff's true. Maybe, fine, sure. But kids, and that goes back to what you said in the beginning. All kids can learn. I don't care what the context is. So here is me putting on my NAACP hat for a second, and thinking about the history of African Americans in this country. The African Americans faced horrific. Circumstances. When I hear people talk about trauma, I'm like, huh? Hmm. What? You know, what? So how is it that folks who uh, were dealing with that kind of stuff learned to read? How is that possible? They, they, they forget about family structure. Like people were sold, branded, raped, like the whole, the whole thing. And they learned to read. They learned to read. And so it, it, at some point we have to step back. And I offer that bit of history because any child means any child. I don't care how much money the parents make. I don't care what color they are. I don't, I don't care if they have dyslexia. I don't, it, it matters in terms of how I approach things. If they got dyslexia, yes, yeah, sure. But the, the, the bedrock principle is they can do it. I am the determining factor. In fact, that's what the research says matters most, more than anything else, is this thing called collective teacher efficacy. This belief that we are the determining factor whether or not that child learned. It's not just rah-rah stuff. Hattie says, it's not just rah-rah stuff. It's, it's this, this unshakable belief that it is us, that we make the difference. When you find that group of teachers, when you find that principle, you, you're on to something. I don't care what the, what the program is, because that, those folks will go figure it out. But when you feel like you're a victim or when you're just kind of 
you know, you twist it in the wind, you're at the mercy of whatever forces are out there, and it, it, these problems are intractable, kind of like the old Coleman report from James Coleman. Like, there are certain problems in society, and you can't overcome them, and 95% of these things are set. It's nurture, not, you know, it's nature, not nurture. Okay, that mindset is a killer in schools. Listen, I don't care what color the teacher is. If your teacher, if the teacher for your child believes that nothing they can do makes a difference for your child's learning, you, you got to think about switching it up. You got to. Because if you don't believe you can make a difference, then why are you teaching my child? Like, even if you've got the skills. Like, if my kid is, I don't want my kid to be in that situation. You know, so we have a lot of uh, reframing to do around this stuff. But I absolutely think that all kids can learn. Yes, absolutely. Kareem Weaver is our guest here on Buffalo What's Next. We're coming down to our, our final few minutes here. And um, as you were talking, and you mentioned about teachers, this is again one of those narratives I think that's part of, uh, you know, it's part anecdotal, but I think there's a lot of stats to it. A lot of people don't want to teach anymore. They got into the teaching business, they just don't want to do it. It's yeah. too much, there's too many factors. I mean, COVID seemed to add a little bit more to this whole thing. What about that and who should we be looking to yeah. for our teachers? So, Jay, I, I, let me say this, it's true. There's a exodus right now in the profession. Teachers want to be successful in their craft. They didn't get in it for the for the uh, the big money. Like, I'm just saying, like they're not in it for the the big pockets and the and the easy work schedule, the, the work life balance. That's not why you sign up for this job, right? However, however, they have to believe that it's doable. If you give everything you can for 10, 15, 20 years, and it's not getting any better, the kids are learning how to read. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's crazy in there. And the people in charge don't know what the heck they're doing. They're making new rules every time you turn around. The pay is still what it is. What are you going to do? If you don't feel you can make the difference you wanted to make, you want to teach your, you want to keep your teachers, give them a fighting chance of being successful at the thing they love to do most. When they know how to teach a kid to read, it changes everything. It changes their experience on the job. Your anti-attrition plan is a professional development plan for literacy. So that means you start with the universities. How are they teaching reading? You can't just, you can't just continue to fund these universities and their education departments and not have any expectations for them. They're completely detached from what goes on in K-12. That can't be the case. Those are public entities. I'm talking about the, the public, right. the private ones, but the public entities, there's a public trust. When we give you this money, when we fund you, it's not so that you can just, you know, shine your brand up here. Like, we, we need you to do something. We need you to apply the research consensus so that you're preparing educators so that when they get into the field in that classroom, they got a fighting chance. If teachers can be successful at their job, everything changes. They stay. They stay. Now, like, you know, People have the right to change jobs. They may take a different role. They may move into a coach position or go up to a, be a principal or whatever. Okay, fine. But, but they're in the field, in the profession. Right now, people are just quitting. They're just leaving right. in mass. And it's because at a certain point in time, we're talking about this reading crisis. Everybody's pointing a finger at you. you. You didn't pick the curriculum. You, you weren't the university methods teacher teaching you this crazy stuff. You were, quote, unquote, sold a story, right? You... you you bought the story that you were given, the narrative, and you're doing the best you can. Listen, I was a teacher for a long time. 
uh, I was divorced. This is getting easier for me to talk about. It was tough for me to talk about for a while. But I, I, I was married young, and I was that teacher that gave everything they could. That was me, okay? And I, it was what was required at the time. I can't say I don't regret it because, you know, my daughter, my oldest daughter, grew up with parents who were split. That's tough. That's, nobody should have to go through that. And my ex-wife says all the time, she's like, you weren't married to me, you were married to those kids. She was right. It took that. When the system's not right, when the grad schools aren't right, when the curriculum's not right, when the leadership's not right, it takes all that and more to reach the kids you gotta reach. Fast forwarded, you know, I'm remarried, and uh, I became a principal. And, well, I, I taught for a long time, after being married, my wife was also a teacher. That was the second thing, marry a teacher because she understands the flow of things. <laughs> okay. I, you know, fool me once. <laughs> so she understood and she saw me in the classroom. She knew how I did. And so she was like, yeah, that's just how you do. And that, she kind of took that as part of the package. But I became a principal. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to do this again. Like, I've got to put some guardrails into place to protect me from myself because this job will consume you and your family if you let it. So part of what has to happen is if you want to keep your teachers you have to make sure that this job can be done by regular people. And we, I, I don't want to leave without talking about a couple of other things related to you and your work. Mm. Fulcrum is your organization. Yes. And there's a movie, Right to Read, there's which does feature your work as well. These are opportunities for people to, to learn a little bit more about this. Uh, yeah. What and should they do? Actually, the Right to Read film, um, executive director is LeVar Burton. Remember uh, Star Trek? Associated Roots, with our uh, broadcasting. Uh, oh, he's actually so he. Oh, fantastic. Right, um, Reading Rainbow actually was produced by uh, Western New York Public Broadcasting. Fantastic. Yeah, well, right he's here. the executive mm -hmm. producer on this film. Yeah, and, and you know, he's all about literacy. He's a, he's a pretty sharp guy, and he's all about literacy, and he, has, he pulls no punches about it. But they're making the film available for free for about a week. I think it goes through March 9th. Right. Mm -hmm. You can go to, oh Lord, let me get this yeah, right. Just go to Right to Read. You know, oh, okay, right, 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 yeah, yeah. right to Read. Uh, go. <laughs> now there's lots of Right to Reads out there. There's a right. Human Rights Commission in Canada. There's a website from some friends of mine in California. Right to Read Film, and then you'll figure it right. out from there. You can ask about Kareem yeah. Weaver, and you'll find it. Well, yeah, yeah. Look up LeVar Burton. <laughs> Kareem Weaver. Look up Brother Burton. You know. I found it through Kareem Weaver. Yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. But yeah, that, that film it just it was just released. We had a, a film festival out in California. I mean, we'll see. I Listen, I, I'm not a movie guy. That's not my thing. Right. Um, I was just doing my job. And they were following us around for years, and they made a story out of it, and they included us in the story. I was a terrible subject. Can we come into this meeting with the superintendent? With, no. What? I'm not bringing a film crew in here. This is real life. It's not a, like, I didn't know. Like, like I said, I'm not a film guy. Right. So no, you can't see this. No, you can't see that. It was no, 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 no for about two years. And then finally, we, we kind of got used to it. My wife still said no. You won't see her in a movie. She want, she's an introvert. She wants nothing to do with it. My mother, same thing. She wants nothing to do with it. Um, but it's, I, I'm hoping it'll at least contribute to the conversation. Right. Because we have to have the, this conversation, which is why I appreciate the work you're doing so much. You, like, this is something we can't just avert our eyes from. we got to talk about this. Kareem Weaver, we've most certainly enjoyed our, our time here and want to thank the Record House for letting us uh, sit here in their lobby to, to do this while you have your busy schedule here in, in western New York. And I uh, uh, hope everyone enjoyed the, the music in the background here <laughs> as well. Kareem Weaver, thanks for uh, giving your time. Jay, it was my pleasure. It was my pleasure.
This has been uh, Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown.